0: Well, good morning, how's everyone doing? Good, you enjoy this week? Monday night, over a thousand touchdowns of lightning. I oh, thought that was pretty interesting, I've never seen that here before. Um, my name is Rob Selleck and it is a privilege and an honor always to come in and uh, get a talk with the adults instead of the kids and the students. Um, Pastor Mark and Terry got to take a vacation for 12 days down to the south and uh, watch NASCAR. Hey, if you like it, you like it. So they got to do NASCAR. they got to, I think, uh, catch a couple college football games. And I believe he's back tomorrow. So he'll be back next uh, weekend. So if you're new with us, um, last week you had Pastor Doug. This week you get me. And uh, come back so you can hear Pastor Mark. And he's going to wrap up our series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, then he'll kind of lead us on into the next book. Because we only have one more week of Mark left, I'm not going to wrap up the book of Mark. We're going to jump out of the book and we're going to do a different study this morning. Um, we're going to go to the Old Testament. We are going to look at an incredible story. Super practical and we're going to watch the mighty hand of God move. And it's uh, there's so much for us to draw from and to learn from and to reflect upon. I'm excited to get into it. Um, let's start off with some context. Cause I want to put some skin on the skeleton, kind of, before we dive into this story, and I want it to be real. I want us to walk out of this building changed, and God's Word in this story can do that. So I want to start off by thinking of a time you had to make a decision. How often do you have to make a decision? Too often. (laughs) You've made a lot this morning, and thank you for being here. But we we, we are faced with decisions all the time. Big decisions or small decisions, they all have a consequence. They all lead to a result. You could say that it's the total sum of who we are is a lot of the decisions that we have made. And I want us to think of a time before we dive in this story where you've stood at the crossroad of a decision. And you had an option to make. And, and normally it's an option between the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And you stand there and oftentimes I really believe I know what I should do. But I look at the right thing to do and guess what? Oftentimes it's harder. Oftentimes it's not as popular. Oftentimes it seems like it's going to take longer. Oftentimes it's lackluster. And oftentimes it's lonely. And it requires self discipline and self control. And I look at the right thing to do and I'm like, hmm, other options. <laughs> and don't let anyone tell you that sin's not fun. I look at that, man, that looks quick, it looks easy, it looks fun, rewarding. And I stand there at that crossroad. You been there? We make that decision to do what's right, the hard path, the right path. You, you've, done, you've done good. Way to go. And you've walked down this the hard way. And have you ever got to the end of that result and you expect the result to be good? Because you've done what was right and you've done what was hard. But have you ever gotten there and it's like, well, this is cruddy. I did what was right and I did it the hard way, but now that I'm here, it just doesn't seem fair. Have you ever felt like that? Wanted to raise your hands. Well, where are you now, God? Why me? Why this? I want to talk about that this morning. For centuries, men and women have wrestled with the fact or the question of why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why would God allow the righteous to suffer? It's a really good question. In the story, we're going to see men that were God's people, and God used them mightily. And we need to be able to answer that question. When we're being God's people, we're going to have hardship. How we deal with it is key. Psalms 34:19. You don't need to turn, but it tells us clearly. It says, "Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous." And he qu- quickly adds, "But the Lord will deliver them out of them all, which is good news." But the question still remains: Why? Why do we need to suffer? Why, when we've been obedient to God, do we have to go through fiery ordeals? And when we're going through fiery ordeals, where is God? What? Where's His sense of justice? Where's His sense of goodness or fairness? Before we look at today's story, it's Daniel chapter 3, I want us to look at a New Testament passage that's going to really lay out this principle for us that we can apply to the story. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 20 we're going to look at. And this passage is going to illustrate to us that God is in control even when we're going through things we don't understand or like. It's a hard passage. But as believers, it's a real good thing for us to start understanding who God is, because the more clearly we understand who He is, we're going to more clearly understand who we are. And when we understand who we are through understanding who He is, we're going to understand how much we need Jesus. First Peter chapter two, verse eighteen through twenty. It says, "Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle." But also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. Verse 20 is key. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? When you do something wrong and you're held accountable to that and you endure that with patience, what credit is there? You deserve it. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. That's hard. And yet it says, this finds favor with God. And you're on that crossroad, and you decide, I'm going to do what's right, and you still suffer. It says, can you, will you endure it with patience? If so, it will find favor with God. Let me read verse 20 in another translation. Living translation. I love the simple language. Just verse 20, you can just listen. Of course, You get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you do right and suffer for it and and are patient beneath the blows, God is well pleased. Have you found yourself in that situation, those circumstances, where you feel like, man, I'm just getting beaten up here? If so, I think today's message is going to be great for you. We're going to find encouragement. We're going to see the sovereignty of God work through the lives of godly men and women. In your uh have your Bibles, please open up to Daniel chapter 3. We are going to take on the entire chapter because it is one story. And it's an incredible story. This would be quite the day to see or to live in. It starts off, it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king. And I want to set up some context to the very first few words, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and we must understand before we start this story that the king had absolute, unquestioned authority and power. It was not like what we are used to today where we vote and we protest and veto and we have all these things. If you did not like or approve the king, it didn't matter. (laughs) And he didn't tell anyone. Because if the king did not like you, he would kill you. Not an equal relationship here. Absolute rule. Nebuchadnezzar the king, he was the king of Babylon. Babylon was the biggest, the strongest, the most advanced kingdom at this time. They ruled and conquered over 80 percent of the known world. Extremely advanced in, in everything, their arts and their education and architecture and military strategies. They just, within the last 10 years, conquered Judah. They conquered Judah, and they did it in a real interesting and specific way. (laughs) When they took over the country, Nebuchadnezzar was a smart leader. They conquered it, and then they they were going to take it over and integrate them into their society in three phases, three waves. And the first wave is he gathered all the best and the brightest, the smartest and the sharpest young men chapter 1, It even says they were good looking. These were the men that were influential, that were promising. And he gathered them up, he brought them into Babylon, and he started to educate them and train them and wanted to infuse the culture into them. Acclimate them into the thinking and the society of Babylon, because he's smart. And he knew if he could raise up these, the best and brightest young Jewish boys as he integrated the rest of the Jews, they'd be more productive citizens. Because then you'd have the Jewish people being ruled and governed by Jewish people that he's influenced their thinking. Smart guy. So in this first group of young people, they're training them and and trying to, you know, infuse their thinking and change their thinking. Several of them remain true to God. They would not compromise, namely Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's interesting in chapters 1 and 2, as they're trying to do this and 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 acclimate them into society and they don't compromise for God, God uses that as an opportunity to keep elevating their position. Really cool. And we're going to see it happen yet again in chapter 3. So that's some context. Chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width, 6 cubits. You guys pretty up-to-date on your conversion of cubits? Pretty good? How tall? Anyone? 90 feet tall. Way to go, 5th and 6th graders. 90 feet tall. How wide? 9 feet thick. That's a big golden statue. He built this statue. It says he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2, The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The king builds an image to honor himself, sets it up in a field, and this sucker is huge, and calls in all the big dogs, all the top brass. This is the complete who's who's list of Babylon. Verse 3, he's going to offer these people to watch the dedication of his statue to honor himself. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald proudly, uh, loudly proclaimed, this is the announcement guy, to you the commandment is given, O people, nations, nations, and men of every language. This is a huge order. O people, nations, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipes, and all kinds of music, it must have been a racket. When you hear the music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Pretty simple, right? I assembled the band. When the band plays, you bow down and worship my image. Verse 6, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And if you don't, you get to go visit the furnace. Verse 7, Therefore at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language fell down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. So far, so good. Verse 8. For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And they said, verse 9, they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the Chaldeans, I think they're schmoozing. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipes, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And King, verse 12, I mean, there's these certain Jews whom you, King, have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. I mean, these are your guys, King. We're just... (laughs) We hate to tell you, but your guys, I mean, this order you gave, they didn't bow down, they're not, they're not doing it right, and keep going. And namely, I mean, I so happen to know the names of these Jews that aren't doing this. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O oh king, have disregarded you. And they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And now the story twists. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, we are not told. But what they did not do is bow down and worship. As far as we're concerned, as believers and followers of God, they have done nothing wrong. The only accusation against them is that they would not worship a false god. In fact, if they were standing in front of us today, I think they would get our applause. Way to stand alone. Way to be God's men. Way to follow God, even if it means to your death. Strong position. Side note, reading this, I I find it so interesting, these Chaldeans are so anxious to go to the king and report on these Jews. I think it's interesting as us, if we're gonna be men and women who boldly stand and proclaim the truth of God. I mean, really live it out that. We too might have some Chaldeans in our life. People are going to look at you and how you live and are going to be quick to respond, make hardships. I mean, think about it. If the Chaldeans were so focused on doing what the king ordered, how'd they even see what the Jews were doing? Weren't they supposed to be worshiping? Is it interesting? They must have been worshiping watching the Jews, taking notes. And as believers, if we're going to make an impact for this world, they did. We can. I think we should beware. It reminds me with our high schoolers. Uh, every so often i get a student come up and be like, man, guess what? I joined the Christian club at my high school. And instantly there's two things I wanted to do with that student. One was encourage them. That is fantastic. It is hard, as you can imagine, to be a high schooler in a public high school and not only the say that, oh, my family's Christian, and move on, but actually proactively proclaim it and be a part of it in high school. It comes at a cost. So I wanted to encourage them. The second thing I want to do is not only encourage them, but I wanted to warn them that it is awesome that one lunch period a month you're going to step into the classroom and participate in this, but the other 28 days when you step out, Live well because there's going to be Chaldeans watching. They're going to try to make this journey and your walk difficult. They're going to come against you. And it's true for us as adults. We step into church, it's important. We have these sayings come with your Sunday best, with the biggest smile, the best clothing. The reality is, what's most important is when we leave. If anything, let's come here tired and worn out from standing and living boldly for Christ. And here's where we're edified and built up and encouraged to be sent back out. I want you to see what happens to these three men. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave order to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, and I think right about now we could all agree that these three Jewish men found themselves in a precarious situation. The king said, worship the statue. Their God said, have no other gods before me. And now they're faced with a dilemma. Should they worship the statue or should they worship the Lord their God? And they decided not to worship the statue. And as a result, they are now standing in front of this king. And the king responds to them in verse 14 and says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You're one of the people I've chosen to bring in and treat very well, educate and, and give housing to. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, Now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the liger, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipes, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the mist of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? It appears the king is going to regather up the boys in the van. It appears the king is going to allow them to have another chance. He's saying, look, guys, the rules are simple. I'm going to get the bands going. You're going to bow down. And then if not, you're going to the furnace. And what God is there? Can I ask you a personal question? What would you do? Stand before the king. I mean, really. We ought not go to this through the story and, and, and personalize it a little bit, what would you do? Because I'm thinking a whole lot of thoughts are going through my head right about now. I'm thinking I'm standing in front of my peers. Some of their peers must have been like, dude, bow. Must be thinking, well, my family's not here yet. My other God-fearing family's still in Judah, so maybe I can just go ahead and bow. They'll never even know maybe I can cross my fingers and I'll just bow on the outside but not on the inside. For us that are advanced in making excuses, maybe we would be thinking, well, I'd really be probably better for me and God if I just went and bowed because if I don't bow, then I'll die and I won't be able to do good works for God in the future. Right? We're so good at justifying it. In that crossroad of decision that these boys are standing on, what would you do? I want you to observe their courageous response. And I want you to remember that they're talking to the man with the rotation of his thumb can take their lives. And these men respond just as they did when they were alone, the same as when they're in the presence. Their faith wasn't a quiet faith. They answered to the king in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Translation, we will not make any defense in this matter. It is what it is. Our position is clean, it's stated, and it's clear. I think that's so interesting because I believe as, as Christians, we feel that oftentimes when we when we say that this is truth and it is absolute truth and we say that in love, we almost feel like we need to apologize though. We need to do it in love. We also need to stand firm on the truth. It's easy to feel we need to give an explanation to our theological position to just to defend the simple truths of God's word. I love the fact they say we offer no explanation. They didn't give a, a basis of their conviction. Let's notice their entire response because it's really powerful. Verse 17 and 18 says, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand." Stating clear and simply, we know we serve a sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present God. And our sovereign God, he will and he can deliver us. And it's interesting, they say it's a twofold, they're doubling down on this. Not only can he deliver us from the furnace, but he can deliver us from you, O King. In verse 18, I mean it is just paramount to these men and what God accomplished through them. He says, But even if he doesn't. Oh. This is before the king. This is an interesting twist. This is the rubber hitting the road. Some people might suggest that them even suggesting that God would not save them is a lack of faith. And I'll tell you, it's it's proof of spiritual maturity. This is them proclaiming God is sovereign and right is right and wrong is wrong and we will not waver. If it, it be so, he can save us. But even if he doesn't, whoa. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, pretty clear. Whether we live, whether we die, forget it, king. We're not going to bow down. It's a nice image, but you built it. We have nothing to do with it. And Nebuchadnezzar got the picture just as clear as I think we're getting it now. And so now we're going to watch Nebuchadnezzar reveal to us his psychotic tendencies. You ready for this? 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. This is good writing here. And his facial expression was altered. That means he's really ticked. It was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not used to be to- told no. This is the king in front of everyone. And he answered by giving orders to. Heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Probably overkill. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up. I want you to notice the word tied up. If you're highlighting, circling, or just mental note. He tied up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up. We see it a second time. I want you to note that. In their trousers their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not fair. 23. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. I want you to notice that, tied up. Now, by all human accounts, this story should be over, done and finished. He built a statue. He made a decree. When you hear the music play, you bow down. They did it. He gave them a second warning. They didn't do it again. And they went into the furnace. Case closed. Story over. Not much more to be talked about. But it goes on. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste he said to his high officials, uh, what, what, was it, "What was it not three men that we cast, notice that word, bound, tied up, in the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, uh, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men bound up, tied up, loosed. They are now loose, walking about, In the midst of the fire, without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regards to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies of the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of smoke even come upon them. And I'm saying it would have been impressive enough for these three amigos to crawl out, start naked, with their burns, their their clothes burned and their hairs fried. It says, but not even the smell of smoke. It reminds me, we do bonfires with 180 in the summertime. Have you ever done a bonfire? Been around fire. It makes me think we do it, and I never got in the fire. I was just around the fire. And I would get in my, you know, afterwards we'd drive the kids back to the church, and I'd often take my sweatshirt off, and a few times I'd leave it in my car overnight. And you'd go back to your car. Have you ever left a, when you've been around fire, a clothing in your car? You open up, it's like a forest fire has been burning in your car. The smell is so potent. But it's just incredible. Not only are they saved, but they're completely divinely insulated. Amazing. Verse 28. As you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God. I mean, he just pulled them out. The dead warriors are still laying on the entry, I'm assuming. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's commands and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. And he goes on. And now I want to make a decree, as I imagine he would. I would say at this point, he has sufficient proof that he better not mess around with the deity as such he just witnessed. So he makes a decree, any people, any nation, any tongue, that speak anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn. He's an extreme passionate guy. Limb to limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the land of Babylon. That has to be one of the most bizarre ways to get a promotion. And what a difference a day makes. A powerful kingdom and a powerful leader like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. One day, God flips it up on its head. This is a task that an army of a thousand soldiers couldn't penetrate this kingdom. And God penetrates the very core of it. Straight to the king with all the leaders watching, with a decree like that, using how many godly men? All they do is just remain faithful. They trust and obey. The most powerful collection of military the world has ever seen, turned on its head by three faithful godly men. There's something we can learn from this story. What was it that they knew? What was it that they did? What can we draw out of this and we too can do if we want to be godly men and women? Because we face the same struggles. And there's three I put together that I'd like to go over that I think we can, we can learn from this story. And the first one is God is sovereign whether the result is triumph or tragedy. We need to go in, that when we stand on the crossroad of uh, that the decision, as we're going to live this out and this world comes against us, we need to know that regardless, even if it's hard, that God is in control. If not, we're going to lose the battle right there. It's easy, unfortunately, for us to think that God is sovereign when everything goes our way, when we're divinely delivered, when we end up in the triumph, When we win the Super Bowl, right, we want to thank God. When we make the catch, we want to thank God. You rarely see somebody miss the catch. But God is sovereign regardless of triumph or tragedy. That includes when the bottom falls out. That includes when the rug is pulled out from underneath you. It includes when we suffer defeat and are experiencing pain and loss and hurt. Situations where I just want to hide in a corner. Have you ever been in a situation where it just seems like everything's crumbling and you don't want your non-Christian family to come around because you're just like, I don't want to explain this. It just relates to me. Or your non-Christian friends, where's your God now? We need to say today, today, inside those situations and outside that God is sovereign. We see it all throughout the Bible. Look at Job. God gave to him plentifully and he took from him. And it was the same God who gave to Job that took away from Job. If we're going to be men that stand up and not bow, we need to understand that God's plans do not come out, at least from our eyes, with rose-colored glasses. He does not promise us a rose garden. We're not going to find it in Scripture. He does promise us that all things work together for good, but he doesn't say that we're going to perceive and experience all things as good in the moment. All things work together for good from God's perspective. From his perspective, it's good, and he's working it together. But in our perspective, whether triumph or tragedy, he is sovereign. Look back at verses 17 and 18. That's what these men understood. They stood on that crossroad with a decision to make. Notice both those verses early on have the word if. They were unsure, uncertain about what was going to happen. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able. But verse 18, but but even if he does not. Two ifs. Their unknown situation was irrelevant to their belief. Powerful. Their undesired circumstances was not connected to their trust. As God's men, our condition, as God's women, our condition should not change our position of who we are in in Christ. The reality is our loving Heavenly Father thinks too much of us to give us everything we want. He cares for us too much to give us everything easy. As you know as well as I, and I'm sure some of you better than I, the best time of learning, the best time of growth is when we are being stretched. It's when the answer doesn't come out like we want, like a fairy tale. The good news is, is we're not promised our happy ever after here on earth. We don't want it here. We got way better. He doesn't promise us the American dream, but from God's perspective, it's wonderful. When we're in these situations like these men, they didn't look at this level. They looked back to God and His promises, and now we get to look back to the cross. And from God's perspective, He says, Oh, no, it's wonderful, and I'm working it all for good. You know why? Because you're forgiven. He says, Church, you know why? You're secure. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. He says, You're, you're a people for my own possession. He says, I'm working it together for good, from my perspective. It might not feel like it from ours, you know what God tells us from His perspective? He says, oh, you're just aliens here. You're just strangers passing through. This isn't your home. Where you belong is next to Christ is joint heirs. He says, why? Because you've been born again with a living hope through the enduring word of God that will not perish. See, God's perspective, it's good. He says for you, for me, for the men and women of God, regardless of what you're going through, I've got an inheritance reserved for you. This perspective, we're eternally saved. We need to get our eyes back on Christ. We need to get our eyes back on the cross. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be wonderful in terms of ecstasy or bliss. It doesn't mean that we're always going to experience the world's definition of happiness. Just ask the family of a young man, this happened years ago. Just finished post-grad school and uh, decided that he was going to go back to seminary. This was a big decision for him. The stage of life he's at and the financial situation of the family. He wanted to go to seminary and uh, through seminary he wanted to dedicate the rest of his life to the mission field. He wanted to serve the poorest of the poor in Africa. He finished mission uh, seminary And the family basically sold everything he had and kind of got him ready. He's going to long-term. He's going to be there for years. And he was planning to spend the rest of his life. Got his first trip set up. It was like a three-year, the first journey was going to be three years before he came back. Took off and his plane never made it. God is sovereign whether the result is triumph or tragedy. They interviewed the family. And the mom and dad, um, as they're being interviewed, basically said, We don't understand, nor can we explain. But we know that God is sovereign, and God is in control. That's warriors. Last night I shared the story. I was debating even to share the story. Odette Fuller came to me after the message. Many of you know Odette, her and Chris served, and said, that's interesting. I know that. That happened 25 years ago. And I saw that on the news. I saw the interview. And when we saw the parents respond in such a way, that's what propelled us to go to church and to start discovering who this Jesus is. I'm starting to think, well, that fits in really well to this weekend's service. See, God is sovereign in both triumph and tragedy. And it needs to be declared, and this is tough, but it needs to be declared that when God says no, it's just as sovereign as when He says yes. And He's to receive the same worship when He takes from us as when He gives from us. Because when we are our eyes on the cross and our hands are open, what we can do for Christ and how He can use us is incredible. Second thing, I think we can learn from this incredible story: suffering is necessary whether it seems fair or unfair. We need to understand that there's a lot more at stake than whether what we're going through seems fair or unfair. I look at this story and see what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I look at it more than just a story, but I really take it for, for what it is, and I put myself in that situation, and I look at when they're standing before the king, and it's either bowered or be killed, and I'm thinking, is that fair? In fact, if I could vote, you know how I'd vote? Not fair. In my opinion, I think those guys needed a promotion without the furnace. We should have took pictures of them and posted them all over the kingdom as heroes. But not so. See, God's plan from my perspective was unfair, but it nevertheless was necessary. You might ask, why was it necessary? And I want to show you why I wanted you to Take note of those words, tied up. Verse 20, they got tied up. Verse 21, they were tied up. Verse 23, they remained tied up. Verse 24, confirmed that they were bound. And then in verse 25, now in the furnace we see these men loosed. Get this and don't miss it. In other words, the only thing that that fire burnt was that which bound them. And if the only reason we go through the furnace is to learn that we need the fire to free us from what was binding us. See, now, from God's perspective, I want to change my vote. I want to vote now, yeah, God, take him to the furnace. You have a purpose, because suffering is necessary, even if it doesn't seem fair. And I wish we had time to invite group of you up you could share with us from the suffering that you have gone through something that God has given you freedom in that you didn't have before your struggle your test your furnace and I bet we'd sit here in awe because the reality is the furnace frees us up and suffering as hard as it is to say and accept is necessary whether it seems fair or not and he uses it to refine us He uses it to grow us, and he uses it to humble us. James chapter 1 verse 2 nails this point. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. This is a tough verse. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word consider, that's a mathematical accounting term. To calculate it, to sum it up as all joy. Joy is not happiness. I cannot schedule to be happy tomorrow at four o'clock because it's an emotion. But I know I can go through tomorrow with joy because it's a characteristic. It's a choice, it's a decision, just like love. Love is not just an emotion, it's a choice, it's an action, it's a decision. And if it wasn't, God couldn't command us to do it. But we decide to consider it, to calculate it, all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various, all sizes, shapes, and fairness or not fair trials. Oh, why? Verse 3, knowing without a doubt that these testings of your faith, oh, the progression here, produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results. So what's the perfect result? So you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what's perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? God. God. Let these trials count it all as joy. These trials that you face produce endurance, endurance, patience, so you can be more perfect, complete, lacking in nothing like God. Suffering is necessary. Whether it seems fair or not fair. Third point. Deliverance is impressive. Whether seen by the godly or the godless. when we go through a test, when we have a furnace experience, we will be watched by both the godly and the godless. And when God takes us and his church through and loosens the things that once bound us and gives us freedom, we become the kind of testimony that we could have never wise other been. And people are watching. And it's impressive. Three men. Committed to be faithful, turn the kingdom upside down on its head. You stand on that crossroad of decision, what will you do? If we too remain faithful. God will use you. This is incredible as his sermon. I don't understand why God uses us, but we are a part of the plan. And when you too our obedience, and God draws you to the other side of the furnace, and you walk out of it, your sermon of your life will be more elegant to your friends than any other thing you could do for them, any message recording or spiritual book you could give them. You become the sermon. Look at verse 28. It's great. It's, the king did a response, you'll notice, and say, Blessed be these three men. The king didn't point the glory back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he said, blessed be the God of these three men. Get this, if you have gone through a test victoriously, it's remarkable. We don't get the glory, but yet we get to become a mirror that reflects the glory to God where it belongs. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, As godless as he was, and I'll tell you, he was godless. We've uncovered, I think it's 52 or 53 temples with various gods from this time in the kingdom. They believed in anything, total pagans. Even him, the witness of watching godly men remain faithful. All the way to me, he makes a decree that if you speak against this god, you're going to die pulled limb from limb and your house would be made rubbish. Wow, there's nothing like the furnace, is there? You'll notice all the way through this message I have not used the word easy. This is an incredible story. But it's not an easy story. I think if we're realistic with it, if we really look at what this story is about, if we really take the principles God's teaching us here and apply it to our lives, it's hard. And I think we ought to ask ourselves this morning that very question. What will you do? Because we too stand on that crossroad. We too have those decisions to make. God is faithful God wants to use us I'm sure many of you are all caught up in the politics the, the all the, the election stuff going on my Facebook feeds are just blowing up with it I'll tell you though as important as that might seem there is nothing nothing, nothing that this world this state, this county, this city this church needs than a group of Men and women who unwaverly decide that we will stand upon God's principles. What will we do? There will be over 500 bodies on this campus this weekend. You know how many God used here? Three. Think of the impact we can make. Think of the opportunity we have. we stand there and say yeah no matter what I like how Paul says it Romans 8 38 and 39 he says for I am convinced no doubt for I am convinced that neither life nor that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For I am convinced we have an opportunity to be God's instruments That is incredible that he can use us. I look around, look around real quick, not to be corny or weird. We need each other. We ought not to take this fellowship lightly. Have you ever thought about we are the body of Christ, different members of it, but joined together for the same purpose. The unity that we have together is paramount. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach had Meshach, Meshach had Abednego, and so on and so forth. They stood together, they answered together, and they succeeded together. Totally in unison. So we can be encouraged. If you are in the midst of a trial, if you are walking through your own furnace experience, you just might be in the midst of a miracle. Will you be faithful? Will you trust and obey? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are humbled, marveled, and grateful for your word. Lord, we want your word to penetrate our hearts in a way that it would change and affect our lives or that we could live it out we might know that you are sovereign. Lord, as we're walking through the peaks and the valleys of life, that we could rest assured that either way, you are sovereign and you are good. Even from our, when, our, when in our perspective we don't understand it. Lord, when we're going through hardships and trials and, and this isn't easy, Lord, let us trust in you knowing that sometimes suffering is what we need knowing that there's people, both godly and godless, watching and this world desperately needs men and women that will live it out, that you're going to use us in a mighty way. So strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, change us, convict us. Let us be aware of your presence and your love and your mercy and your grace. Soften our hearts, cleanse our hands that we might be used. Lord, it's in your Son's name, the name that is high and far above all other names. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And the church says, Amen.